I had a day job. Like I said, this is an all volunteer CGI is an all volunteer organization. And I can't, I didn't have four weeks a year vacation to begin with. And if I were to tell my family who I had young children at the time that, you know, Hey, guess what? I'm going to Ukraine and you guys are going to Miami beach or something. And I guess I'll see you later. So it just wasn't sustainable and it wasn't scalable. And I just felt like I was right out of the blocks and tripped and fell right on flat on my face. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To reduce risk in your life, go to myworstinvestmentever.com today and take the risk reduction assessment I created from the lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Dr. Chris Stout. Dr. Chris Stout, oh my goodness, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. I'm excited to have you on, and I want to introduce you to the audience. Dr. Chris Stout is a licensed clinical psychologist and international humanitarian with a diverse background in various domains. He's a founding director of the top-ranked nonprofit, the Center for Global Initiatives, and works as the executive producer and host of the popular Living a Life in Full podcast, a top 5% show with an audience reach of 3 million plus. He was a fellow in the School of Public Health and full professor in the Department of Psychology in the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And prior to that, he held an academic appointment at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of medicine. And, you know, one other thing about you that I was just rummaging through in your, you know, your tremendous accomplishments is that you've, you've written 38 books. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Maybe Thank you can you. just take a moment and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this world. Well, thank you, Andrew. First of all, thanks again. I appreciate being a guest on your show and have enjoyed your show for a while. I guess that's a wonderful, challenging question to kind of start off. What I try to do is be of service to others. I have found just as much as that sounds like, you know, kind of an outward perspective, it also is one of the things that I find just for myself, and I think a lot of other people feel this way too, is that it brings great joy. So if I can be additive, if I can contribute, if there's some something that I can do at a, at a small level or at a lower level or a grand level or a, a big project, I'm there. I'm happy to roll up my sleeves, not be a dilettante, and uh, see if I can be of help and value. That's fantastic. And I wonder, you know, let's go back in time. What is it that motivate you to study, you know, psychology and become a clinical psychologist? I mean, you're at a, an, a great point in your life now, but in the beginning, I'm just curious, like, what was it that triggered you to do that? Gosh, it was sort of um, benign counseling, I think, from people. <laughs> so but a quick snapshot of my life story is that my folks got divorced before I was one year old. They, you know, I, I kind of grew up with a single working mom, which was, you know, it, it turned out fine, but my parents hadn't gone to college. My paternal grandparents hadn't even graduated high school. So while there was a value for education, there really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, experience or anything, you know, specifically from my family about that. So I was the first to go to college and first to go to graduate school. 
to that benign counseling, I had never even taken a psychology class in high school. So I went to college as an undergrad and just kind of like didn't know what to do. I was a math major to start because I was interested in computers. And this is back in the Cro-Magnon era where computers were like these, you know, big, big machines and big buildings. And I took my first Fortran class and we were on, you know, punch cards and deck tins and all this. And I just said, oh my God, I can't write code. You know, we didn't even call it code back then. I can't write programs back then, you know, forever for, you know, my 40 hours a week kind of a thing. And I, I was in the school of science uh, for that in the department of mathematics. And I took a psychology class as an elective and loved it. And where I went, they had psychology as a social science, like as a 101 and psychology as a biological science as a 102. I took them both, loved them, and then started taking others and filling up my electives with all these psychology classes and thought, you know, I, I really don't want to stay in, because it didn't even exist as computer science. So I didn't want to stay with a, in mathematics and shifted into psychology and took, I think, 50 some odd credits by the time I graduated. So my senior year, I, was, I took 21 credits just because I was so nuts about psychology. So everyone else is like taking 12 or whatever, just to stay full time. And I'm like, hey, this is great. And, and as the old joke or cliche goes, you know, what do you do with an undergraduate degree in psychology? Well, you apply to graduate school because you really can't do a whole lot specifically in <laughs> psychology. So that got me into graduate school. And I thought I would be because back with my math and, and you as an analyst, you would get this, you know, I liked data and I thought I'll be a researcher and I'll, you know, do psychological research. I'll be an academic. And I wound up and I'll, uh, you know, do that. Really liked the clinical, got into a clinical program, enjoyed the clinical aspect of it. Then I thought, okay, well, I'll work with adults as outpatients. And then I wound up graduating and working with children as inpatients. So it's sort of like, you know, a little bit of Mr. Magoo, as I like to describe it, because I kind of go in one direction and see what that was like. And I'd find, you know, some other bright, sparkly object and go off in that direction. And generally that's kind of been this patchwork of what my career has looked like as I look back, but they all kind of, everything sort of added something to, to every other little part of it. And I stayed in the academic side. I liked to write. I did a lot of, you know, data analytics and big data stuff towards the tail end of my work. And, and, you know, it just all kind of fit together in a generally uh, cohesive package. It's, uh, you know, you make me, you bring me back in time to, let's say, 1970, let's say 1973 or something like that. And I was just, I was, you know, a young kid and I was in school and I was just, you know, I was full of energy. It's what you would call ADHD nowadays, probably, or something like that. But I just was full of energy and I didn't have much time for the teachers and all. (laughs) And so, but I'll tell you an interesting story. So my parents took me to see a psychologist and a psychiatrist then in those days. And, um, you know, I don't remember much of those days, but my mom gave me a booklet when I was 40. And it was my medical notes that she made on my medical life, you know, what happened, my, my different diseases or whatever I got. But at the age of seven, my mother put in the notes that they started giving me Ritalin. And as I looked at that at the age of 40, it kind of, it was kind of shocking to me to think about that. And then when I look at the addiction that I went through, you know, and having to go through, and I was an inpatient in different hospitals and different places and trying to overcome addiction at, at a pretty young age, which I eventually did. I just, I look back at that and I just think, wow, that, I wonder what, what impact that had. And, and then 
fast forward, I haven't lived in the US for 30 years. And I talk to people and I listen to things that are going on there. And I just think, yeah, I mean, child psychology and support for young people. I mean, I just saw a study that said that 30% of people say that they're lonely and they don't have one relationship. And I remember reading this book, Reality Therapy by Dr. William Glasser many years ago. And it talked about the importance of building trusting relationship and how many mental and you know emotional reactions are just your body coping yourself coping with you know with not having that trusting relationship and i just wonder right. you know like what what did you see at that time what do you see now as far as what's going on with young people and in their struggles that's a very good and deep and complex question i um it's and it's also i want to tip my hat to your transparency and sharing your experiences too, because a lot of people feel very stigmatized by that. And I think it's very helpful for others to see people that are successful like you to know that, it, you know, you weren't, you know, it wasn't an easy path and that you, you know, you made your way through a variety of other kinds of challenges that people probably wouldn't ever stop to think about. And I think that gives inspiration to others that are currently going through a struggle. So that I think is very important. As far as relationships, I mean, kind of universally, I think through there's, you know, a variety of different kinds of approaches and flavors of therapy, if you will. And I think the relationship is kind of, you know, with whoever it might be is critical. You know, there's like early, even like in, in paleological kinds of research, not even psychological, you know, there's bonding and there's tribes and there's relationships with, you know, parents and offspring and bonding kinds of issues. So when those attachments and bonds aren't stable or there's abuse or there's neglect, you know, those bonds break, they evaporate, they're not there. I think today with technology and not to sound like a Luddite or anything, but I think that's even more challenging because it's almost like people have these pseudo relationships where like I've, you know, you and I are deep in the podcast world. I mean, there's some people that feel like as audience members that they know the podcast hosts so well because they've listened to a bazillion of their episodes and then they feel like they have a relationship with them. And, you know, people used to feel this way with, you know, with movie stars or, you know, that sort of a thing. So people, to me, it's sort of like a proxy for having a relationship and it's not, you know, it's obviously not a real relationship. So the technology that we thought, you know, in the the early 2000s was going to bring us all together and unite us, it has from information, but it hasn't necessarily in relationships and that kind of thing. So I think it's, and even in therapy, you know, to to be able to have a good therapeutic relationship, you have to have a therapeutic bond and you have to have a level of trust and you have to have a, you know, level of knowledge to, you know, form those kinds of things. And if people don't have those as for early experiences, it is something that's learnable and teachable, but it just makes life a bit more of a challenge and, and loneliness, you know, with the whole COVID thing and restrictions and quarantines just exacerbated it. I mean, it just really kind of, I think, you know, blipped the gas on that in, in a very negative, corrosive kind of way. Yeah, it's interesting in Thailand, we didn't have a lot of COVID deaths because people's health is pretty strong here. And that helped them a lot that obesity is not, you know, an epidemic here and all that. Right. But yeah. the lockdowns caused suicide rates to go up massively. Oh and so gosh. you, with countries wow. that are relatively healthy, you can literally have more damage from the lockdown through suicides than you have benefits of, you know, wow. people that you save. So yeah it's, yeah, it's very, it's very real. And for the listeners out there, you know, if you don't have 
if you don't have a close relationship of someone that you can rely on, work on finding that person. Yeah. Reach yeah, out yeah. to somebody that you admire, you're interested, you know, you like them. And I, I tell a story about a friend of mine named Andrew Biggs, another Andrew. And he and I are both in Thailand and we kind of knew each other briefly and a little bit. But I don't know, about 10 or 15 years ago, we just started to make an effort to get to know each other. And after we really got to know each other, I thought to myself, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I've made a new friend. And so maybe that's kind of the tribute of this discussion is to challenge everybody who's listening. Like maybe it's time to think about adding a new friend to your life. Yeah, that's good. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to be a friend to someone else, you know, show, show that kindness, show that sincere, authentic interest in someone else. And, you know, that's rewarding in and of itself too, not just as a way of why oh, I need a friend, but to be able to say, I also need to be a friend. Great point. And I teach a course in ethics for finance and also for the chartered financial analysts, you know, society and institute and all that. And uh -huh. basically I, I have 10 ways that ethics adds value to you. And I try to put ethics in a positive light and try to help people see that, you know, this really is something that can add a lot to you. So I talk about, you know, things like confidentiality of your client's information. I talk about the way you interact with people and the way you do your work. But when you talk about when you interact with people, one of the things I talk about is to be a trustworthy person, that the client can trust you with their money, with their, you know, objectives, ultimately. So I always ask the same question when I'm up in front of audiences of people and I say, how many people do you trust? And the average, you know, the, the range comes between zero and five. <laughs> wow. <laughs> With most, as I say, for most people that say five, they probably hasn't, haven't really tested them. But <laughs> wow. I would say that I'm pretty confident to say that most people probably have two people they can trust, maybe three if you're lucky. But then I asked the second question, which is, if I was to ask your friend, how many people they trust, and they identify one or two, would you be that one? <laughs> and that great... goes to the point that you're saying, you said, <laughs> yeah. try to be a trustworthy person, try to be a good friend, and then you create good friendships. But one of the things I also take from that is that we can see that's a simple research. It's a survey and it's got some flaws in it. But if we wanted to do some research, we could beef that up and ask people that question. And in the end, we may end up with, you know, one, two, three on average that people trust, you know, how many people they trust. And that, that is evidence right there that trust is rare. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a given too. I mean, sometimes there's circumstances, you know, you can kind of just pick out anything from, from stories, from, you know, real life that trust typically gets tested, you know, in, in serious relationships, not superficial relationships. And if the, the trust is there and the trust, you know, is mutual and there's a reciprocity, then, you know, I think it strengthens it, but it's sort of like as much as other things can strengthen it, you know, it doesn't take much either to dilute it or to, to weaken it, you know, either. So it, it's, it's a, it's a tightrope sometime. Yeah. I mean, that other thing you can say about trust is this with all the books and stuff out there called the hack, the secret, whatever, there is no secret or hack. There's no shortcut to trust. It just takes time. And as you say, you're going to have to go through some difficult situations. And 
I described to you before we turned on the uh, recorder about being living through the 1997 Asian crisis and being stuck in my factory, lost my job with my best friend, trying to figure things out. But all the way through that time, he never broke trust. And so, and I never broke his trucks. And now we've been friends for, you know, 40 some years and we've never broken trust. So I really, really challenge. And I think this is a good theme for everybody listening is reach out to that person that you do trust and tell them, hey, I really appreciate the fact that I can trust you over the years. And if you don't have someone that you can trust, put in some effort. You know, here you're hearing it from a clinical psychologist, not from just your random, you know, podcaster like me and business guy. So go out and find those people. Let's build trust in this world. All right. Well, let me just ask before we get into the big question, what are some of the things that you're most excited about right now? I mean, uh, I was interested in your latest podcast episode because you guys were talking about running and I'm just trying to become a runner. I'm more of a shuffler right now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's me too, man. <laughs> so I like to finish races. I, I never think about winning them. <laughs> so. yeah. I'm going for the finish. Exactly. Yeah, I'm going for the start. <laughs> yeah. But tell me what's exciting out of all the different things you're doing for, for the audience of what's the best way to get value from you right now. Well, I'll try and give a little bit of a checklist. Hmm. I have recently at one of my alma maters been invited to do some mentoring. So it's the School of Science, which we were just talking about. So it's probably top of mind. And I did a, um, an invited kind of a workshop, mentor workshop that anybody can listen to. It's freely available on, on YouTube, talking about like if, for, if people, the people in your audience may be a little older than this demographic, but you know, like if you're in um, undergrad and you're looking to get into graduate school, or if you're an undergrad and looking to graduate and get into that first job, what are some of the best ways to be able to do that? So I'm kind of, this is, and that was kind of the first project in what I think will be an ongoing project with that school. So everything I do specifically for that school tends to be pretty generalizable, maybe to people in that, that circumstance, you know, if you're looking for a job or whatever, it doesn't necessarily have to be your first job, but how to maximize the likelihood and how to properly utilize LinkedIn, things like that. For my nonprofit, with how my life has kind of evolved to where I'm at today, I had we developed a fellowship and certificate program, which we're very proud of to be able to help people, you know, get involved in that. And if they're interested in that area, all of the materials we have for that are free of charge. And also just a plug for our, our nonprofit center for global initiatives. We have everything on our site is free. There's no paywalls. We have downloadable spreadsheets. We have Oh gosh, probably a dozen, 10, 12 YouTube links for videos and, and lectures. We have a whole downloadable library and a variety of things. If you're already working in the humanitarian area, we have a link for discounted humanitarian airfare if you're working internationally. So it's just really kind of this cornucopia. We are always adding to it and it's always updated. There's a variety of things there. And then segueing that into the podcast and just being able to use media, we also have the podcast, which drops once a month, Living a Life in Full. And a common thread, although it's a magazine style show, like you said, we've just had Jordan Metzel on and talking about running and health and health span. There's probably a, a thread through no matter what the person is, because we've also had William Green and Guy Spear. We've had journalists, we've had financial people, we've had 
diplomats. We had an astronaut. I mean, it's really a cornucopia of really kind of cool, interesting people. And the aspect that almost all of them have is that they're also involved in the philanthropic or humanitarian space in all diverse different kinds of areas. So, so that's kind of cool. And maybe the, the last thing to kind of tease this up is that I'm a LinkedIn influencer. So LinkedIn requires you, if you're an influencer, to write and contribute original content at a fairly frequent cadence, which is great. It's good discipline for me. I love writing and it's nice to kind of have topical kinds of of things, current event kinds of things going on and to do it outside of specifically my field. I oftentimes lean into technology and healthcare and startups, but also, you know, healthcare and global health and nonprofits and just kind of, you know, whatever tickles my fancy. So a recent guest is a fellow named Charlie Bressler and Charlie worked with Peter Singer, who wrote the book, the life you can save. For those who may not know, Peter Singer is a philosopher based out of Australia and really has this perspective that's kind of grown into what people call effective altruism. So kind of, I was really moved by the book. I had read it a long time ago. It's come out in a new 10th edition, updated, or pardon me, 10-year second edition. And it really got me to thinking in a philosophical area about moral obligations and what our obligations might be to others. You know, if there's things that we have that we can do to to be of help and the whole effective altruism movement and this conversation I had with Charlie, who kind of became the initial director of a nonprofit that's based on the book, The Life You Can Save. And so publicly here, what I decided to do was to, this is 2022, so all of 2021 and thus far in 2022, I've donated 100% of my salary to nonprofits. And I'm going to try and continue to do that and live off my investments as long as I can and continue to do that 100%, just as kind of a, a reach goal for others to think about. I'm not recommending anybody else should do this or needs to do this, but that's kind of what fit for me. And that's kind mm. of what I wanted to really kind of full-throated say, I'm really moved by this. You know, I, I have the nonprofit and I've done this, I've done that. That's great. But, you know, let's let's up the ante a little bit for me. So that's kind of my current experiment wow. in, in this, this concept of moral obligation and effective altruism. So we'll see how long I can tread water and do that. But that's kind of my my big nutshell. Your simple question with my mouthful of answer, but that's kind of what I'm working on these days. That's admirable. I, I don't think I could do that right now, but... I hope I look forward to the day. Now, let me ask you another thing on LinkedIn. You have something you do called Tools for Change, and you publish it monthly. You've got 127,000 subscribers on that, which is huge. And for anybody that wants to go, you just go to Dr. Chris Stout, and you can find this on his profile. But when you go through it, I mean, my goodness, the tools that are in there, the links, the, the length of what you've done. I mean, just tell us a little bit about that. That seems like a very valuable thing. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the shout out on that. It's a lot of these obviously are, are labors of love <laughs> because they're certainly not labors of, of economics. I just, yeah, I guess it's kind of the the inner professor in me that I just really like to to teach and to instruct. And and sometimes, you know, I get to be the um, the person kind of behind the scenes when it's a podcast that I do my research on my guest, and then they get to, you know, share their experience and, and add to others. But tools for change is again, kind of maybe the the digital or the written version of that in the sense of it's a compilation of kind of 
latest news and tidbits and things in a variety of areas and to be a little, I don't know, cute about it. You know, everything is like tools for this or tools for that. So when I come across things that I've, you know, read and that I felt are like really kind of cool and I want to share some, you know, share it with somebody, then I just aggregate those over the course of the month prior and then put them into this kind of structured format. The format stays the same month to month, but the content obviously changes with each issue. And yeah, I've got a Thank you for saying that because I've gotten a lot of you know nice comments on that. We evolved initially was born out of global health and COVID and, and public health issues initially. And we were weekly kind of when COVID was really kind of in the, the heat of the moment to try and find to be a place of vetted resource. So because there's a lot of you know fake news and untrustworthy things, and it was just sort of like again, moral obligation that you know, well, I've got a background in public health and I got a background in psychology, I got a background in science. I can kind of vet, you know, what seems like, you know, baloney and, and fake news. I've written on LinkedIn. I've got a three-part series on for what I call fad science and, you know, how to kind of distinguish what's, you know, snake oil versus what's science. So it just seemed kind of like a natural fit. And then once COVID thankfully has died down a bit and hopefully will continue to not be as, as front and center as it was, we decided to evolve. There wasn't a need to be weekly. And again, with the, the concept of tools and back to your very first question of trying to add value, it's sort of like, these are things that I've vetted that I think are great. A lot of times it'll be, you know, friends that have written something that I want to help, you know, publicize about them. And again, it's, it's free, just comes to your inbox, you know, once a month, they sit on LinkedIn. So if you missed an issue or something, or want to go back and look at them, you know, they're fairly, some of the content's fairly evergreen. It's not like it's news flashes or, yep. you know, here's, here's how the stock market did last week, but it might be more long-term investing things. So, you know, people will see, you know, drop a, again, a thing to William Green or Guy Spear, or Mark Mahaney, you know, et cetera, those kinds of folks. Cause I track their stuff. I read their yep. stuff. And when it's something that I feel like is valuable, then, you know, I, it's more than it's my moral obligation to help share it with others. Tools for productivity, tools for living your life in full, tools for fitness and performance. I just like the one, one article you reference is The Mind Gym, Five Ways to Make Exercise a Pleasure. Tools for your career, for investing, as you were saying, leadership, founders, just a wealth of information. So for the audience, you know, go to Chris's LinkedIn and look for tools for change. I guarantee you that's going to be valuable for about anybody that is looking for tools. So, well, thank you, Andrew. What a great intro. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, then tell us your story. Oh, thank you. Well, it was for me, the circumstance, you know, because I'm not as involved and in, I'm kind of like probably, you know, Joe Average in terms of investments and things like that. So it's not a full-time job or anything that, you know, managing those things and, and, or playing the markets or day trading or anything. But for me, it was really more so an experience with my, my nonprofit. I had the story in the background of that is that I also, I like to climb. And one of my goals was to climb the seven summits and the seven summits is the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. And I started off, you know, wisely, I think with the easy one, one which is Kilimanjaro, not that it's easy, but it comparatively to others it is. So on that hike, I met a fellow who lived in Tanzania. He was working his way through seminary and we just really hit it off. And this is 1992. So there was no you know, public internet or anything like that. We became pen pals. And then he was kind of working as a porter 
on our expedition to make money to pay for his college to go to a seminary and to become a priest, which all that worked out well. And he did indeed do that. And we continue to keep in touch. And he got in charge, put in charge of a orphanage in Tanzania and later became in charge a chaplain at two hospitals in Tanzania. And we just always kind of kept in touch during that time. One thing led to another, to make a long story short, we tried to be helpful. I was working at a hospital at the time, and we shipped a number of materials over for the kids for Christmas. So it was like school supplies and art supplies and coloring books and things like that. We found it cost a fortune to do that. We sent seven boxes. Like he thanked me in February because it took like four months for him to get there for, for the five boxes I sent. So two, <laughs> two went Lord knows where. So so anyway, we just thought, okay, well, this is, you know, we're trying to do good and it shouldn't be so hard, you know, to do good and shouldn't be so freaking expensive either. So I had a, had a mentor then and continued to be in touch with him, a guy who was an attorney. And he said, you know, well, who funds all this stuff? Who paid for all that shipping? I said, well, I did. And he goes, you know, he asked me if we got a couple of other projects. He said, well, how'd you fund that? And I said, well, I paid for it, you know? And he said, well, what are you going to like, you know, fund all this stuff? And I guess maybe now from what I was saying about donating my salary, I guess maybe I've come full circle with that. Yeah, I guess I am. But he said, you know, what you do, people want to support. But he said, if someone has a choice of writing a check to the Red Cross for 25 bucks, and someone has a choice of writing a check to Chris Stout to help fund this project for 25 bucks, they'll get a tax deduction with the Red Cross, and they they won't get a tax deduction with Chris Stout. They'll get a warm and fuzzy with both. But you know, if you're going to tip the scale, then why not get the tax deduction? So I got that. And I said, well, great, wonderful. So what do I do? And he said, well, you need to create a nonprofit. And I said, great, wonderful. How do I go about doing that? So he said, call my wife. Well, his wife is also an attorney who works in that area. So everybody, I should also say a plug to those kinds of folks, everybody that's been part of our center has done a pro bono. And so they did this entire IRS application, which is a huge pain. And there's no guarantee that the IRS will approve it or anything like that. It takes a while to put together. It takes a while to hear back. I learned you would appreciate this from your financial background that you file a whole different set of taxes, you know, that I had no idea, you know, you do a 990, you don't do a 1040 and it's just like this whole new world. And they held me by the hand and they got me the big crayons and they helped step me through all this stuff and we got our approval. So then people could make, you know, these donations and they could get, you know, their tax deductions. It's worked out nicely online because there's a variety of platforms that the only way that you can even be on there is if you are a legitimate 501c3. So, so all that, you know, turned out well. We're feeling, you know, pretty proud. I have a nice board of directors. We're doing a project in India. We're doing a project in Cambodia. We're doing a project in Africa with my friend. Gosh, where else? We did a project in Benin, Africa. We did, there's another one. It's like the seven dwarfs. I can always name six. So we had five projects. I can, you know, always name four, but not the five. And we had someone, this couple from Ukraine come to us. And this is to set the time for this. This is probably, we found it in 2007. So this is probably around 2009. And they came to me and they said, you know, hey, we have this project that we want to do. And we feel like it'd be a good collaboration with your center. And we're applying for a grant through USAID. And it was to do a project with profoundly developmentally uh, different children in orphanages in Ukraine. And we said, okay, great. So we roll up our sleeves and we start to, you know, and I've done grants. I worked for the state of Illinois as the chief of psychology for their hospitals. And I'm very familiar with the grant process and things. And USAID wasn't a whole lot different. So we're, we're you know, putting pencil to paper and looking at the numbers and looking at what the project's going to require. 
And as I'm doing this with my board subsequent, like it was sort of like the requirement was we need to do baseline assessments to see if the intervention would have an impact. And it was going to be a three-year grant. And the first year was to do the assessments. And the second year was to do the intervention. The third year was to look at outcomes. And each one of those segments would required a quarterly visit to go, you know, in country, you can't do this remotely, to do an evaluation of the sites. And I was the, no one else on my board was a psychologist. I was a psychologist and I was trained. There's a thing called the Moose Ward Atmosphere Scale. So I was trained in that. So I was kind of like the guy that was going to be doing this, which was cool, which was fine. You know, I've been all over the place and been to much worse places. And, but, but those were typically kind of one-off things to, you know, to give a lecture or to do this or that. Well, this was an ongoing thing. So I would have to have gone to Kiev four times a year for about a week to 10 days each time. And I'd need to do that and make a commitment to do that, you know, for three years. And, you know, I had a day job. Like I said, this is an all volunteer CGI is an all volunteer organization. And I can't, I didn't have four weeks a year of vacation to begin with. And if I were to tell my family who I had young children at the time that, you know, hey, guess what? I'm going to Ukraine and you guys are going to Miami Beach or something. And I guess I'll see you later. So it just wasn't sustainable and it wasn't scalable. And I just felt like I was right out of the blocks and tripped and fell right on flat on my face. So in the sense of, I know from your background of, of how you kind of, you know, suss what are the, the salient aspects, I felt like I probably didn't have a realistic enough view. I was a little too blue sky in my thinking that we can scale this forever. You know, this will go, you know, we can do a million projects. We can, you know, go anywhere, do anything, blah, blah, blah. And it was a very sobering experience to say, no, this, you know, the projects that you have going are a little different. I should also say that we never pick a project. Projects always picked us. So they were always with some kind of colleague or with someone that we were already, you know, had an involvement with, like my friend in, in Tanzania. So that was a little different with this group. They had kind of, by that point, our center had some notoriety and visibility to others. And that's why they had come to us. And they were local to the Chicago area as well. I mean, we physically, you know, met in person. So I just thought, well, you know, great. You know, what do we do now? Do I just shutter it? Do we just say, okay, well, we're closed for any new business? You know, I sort of like, this is awful. You know, it's like, you know, we went through all this work, all the IRS stuff, all the volunteer effort and, and sweat equity into this. And now what? So my board, bless their hearts, really kind of took pity on me because I was probably relatively transparent in my upset with how this, you know, now had seemed like it had, you know, crashed and burned. And they said, you know, you through this process, it wasn't all me, but, you know, I was kind of, you know, the, the ring leader of this or ring master, depending on how you want to look at it. And they said, you have put together a group of people that kind of, you know, have these different areas of expertise. We have gone through this 501c3 process and I was, you know, shoulder to shoulder with everybody doing, I didn't just hand it off to them. I mean, I was writing it and they were telling me what to write, how these forms translated into English and stuff like that. We've got a lot of valuable content, which maybe again, harkens back to tools for change. We've got a lot of valuable content and a lot of valuable experience that can be a real step saver for people wanting to start their own 501c3s. 
We've got a lot of content out there that, you know, we put together that you write for LinkedIn, you know, put it on the website, stick it out there, give a, give a talk and record the next talk and webinar that you give and put it out there for people, you know, kind of start to compile, create digital, virtual, publicly accessible libraries for people with this, provide consultation for people when they, you know, come to you to say, well, I want to, I'm a graduate or I'm a student and I want to get into the nonprofit arena or I want to get involved in public health or global health or mental health or, you know, blah, 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 blah. You've got expertise in these areas, you know, so part of what you can provide to people, you know, just free consultations for people wanting to do these things or helping people through this crazy process of, you know, whatever their project is. So, so that's kind of what we did. Our big pivot was to kind of become this teacher person to fish or to be the Johnny Appleseed of, you know, helping people that want to do this, but where, you know, where do they start? They can spend literally days, hours, you know, on Google, figuring this stuff out, but we've already done it. So, you know, why not lean into us, you know, so I've had, I can't tell you how many hours of conversations with people to help them get their nonprofits started. We've put together, like I said, this, the certificate and fellowship program to kind of formalize it. And for me to be obsessive compulsive and organize things in a way that makes it kind of, you know, step one, step two, step three, rather than just organic and mishmash and whatever, you know, comes to mind when I'm talking to someone and to really try and, and grow that and, and amplify that. And again, Tools for Change was maybe an, an amplification and an augmentation of that even further to say, you know, we do still have the humanitarian part of it. We still have the global health part of it. We still have the psychology part of it. But we also, you know, I realize too that people have, you know, need to have jobs, just like, you know, I need to have that day job to be able to do this. So while we have a lot of nonprofit job links in there, there's a great new group I was introduced to by Charlie Bressler called 80,000 Hours. They're people that specifically focus on jobs that are in the kind of not necessarily humanitarian, but in the helping areas for people. And you don't need to, you can have an undergrad degree or probably even no degree and be able to get find jobs if this is something that you want to spend your 80,000 hours of your career in. So, so for me, I just dig that. I mean, I dig these kinds of conversations where I can be on the other side of the mic with a you know smart you know person with you with worldly experience to be able to share these experiences to new audiences that might not necessarily you know know about our show or know about the kind of things that I've made freely publicly available. I mean, honest to goodness, there is not a thing. I don't even know if there's other stuff that I'm on that has a paywall to it. But I mean, it's just sort of like having all this stuff be out there freely available for people to you know find and to use and because what are they going to do with it? They're going to then go do a project that I don't have to be a part of. That's great. That's, that's the amplification. That's the, the, you know, kind of what, what we've pivoted to do. So, so I guess it's, it's like not, I guess maybe another part of it to the mistakey part of it is that I also didn't appreciate and realize the value of what it was that I was doing, you know, that could have for other people. And I suspect that maybe some folks in your audience and in a similar situation may not have that kind of appreciation that what they've done and what they have the capacity to do, they may not give themselves credit for. And I think, you know, I, I would say I would take that on as, as a issue for me too, that I really kind of, oh, well, if I can do it, it's easy or if, oh, I can do it, you know, anybody can do it or whatever. I still think that's true, but it's sort of like, it's not that these things are necessarily hard, but it's also 
there are things that there's easier ways to skin the cat that if, if people can learn from the mistakes I've made to then not make them, well, then mm. all the faster it's going to be for those folks. So right. thank you for the platform to, to give that diatribe. But, uh, but that's no. kind of, you know, kind of what what I went through, the emotional part of it, and then coming out the other end going, OK, well, here's this is a good pivot. Maybe this is even a better fit than what we thought. And knock on wood, so far, so good. So how would you think about it, you know, based upon what you learned from that and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I guess, you know, Schumpeter talks about creative destruction and I guess Kobe in a different way talks about begin with the end in mind, but I guess maybe in a sense of maybe blending those is like to plan for the end. I mean, I never really thought about well, what's going to happen to the center? You know, is it, you know, when I croak, is it going to croak? Is it going to live on without me? Have I made it so dependent upon me that it can't be independent? And I've had deep thoughts about it in public conversations about it. And kind of the current point where I'm at right now is to say that I don't want to become some moribund, outdated, old-fashioned center or entity or nonprofit that kind of has outlived its usefulness. So we've kind of, it's not a suicide pill, but I mean, we've kind of put in a design that, you know, we'll, we will shutter the center, you know, at a certain point in time. And, you know, the Jerry Seinfeld, leave them wanting more, you know, so, so we, you know, it's, it's that kind of a thing where, you know, I, I've also written, I've got a new piece that'll come out probably in September on LinkedIn about this whole effective altruism and foundations, you know, spending down the funds that they have and being able to, you know, not live for the reason of, of living. Like, for example, you know, like there's, there's large institutions that grow to be large institutions that then all of a sudden, like William Easterly writes in The White Man's Burden, like the power of the small project versus when you get so huge, you've got such large overhead, you've got such large expenses that all of a sudden your operating budget exceeds, you know, your the amount of money that you're putting to the work, so to speak. So I never, ever, ever, I don't, I'll never get to that point because we'll never have that much, you know, funding, but I never, ever want to get to that even, you know, proportionally or, or in a ratio kind of way. So, so I guess I would, you know, I would say that think about, you know, the, how, how will this end? What's the best way for this to end? And that might also maybe inform, maybe this is a little blue sky again of me, it might also maybe inform what happens when things don't go well and you do need to make that pivot. So maybe that's the, the way I can squeeze in two answers to your one question. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, given the city that you're from, I'm going to say everybody should accept that you're going to have the last dance at some point. <laughs> oh, nice reference. <laughs> uh, for, for those people that haven't watched The Last Dance on Netflix, <laughs> I just can't imagine that somebody yeah. hasn't. But if you're listening and you it. haven't, yeah. you got to see it. I have to admit, I think I've watched it three times now. Oh, wow. That's impressive. That's I just, yeah. the yeah, competitive it's... spirit of Michael Jordan is just. Yeah. And I, I watched Netflix in my bed, basically on, on a little, <laughs> on my phone, you know, little, uh, propped up and you uh, just, whenever <laughs> I'm watching the last dance, you'll, if you were outside the room, you'd care occasional. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So yes, we all are going to yeah. have our last dance. So that's right. That and, uh, <laughs> and build for that. So another question I have for you is, you know, you've got so many different resources. What would be a resource of yours that you would recommend for the listeners? Well, probably two. And they're both digital websites and they're both kind of um, 
portals in a sense, and it seems that the word sounds so old-fashioned now, but if you go to centerforglobalinitiatives.org, that's the obviously the nonprofit site, We've revamped the website. Thank goodness. It was really getting kind of long in the tooth. So I'm kind of happy with with how it looks now and its refreshedness. And we'll always keep, like I said, adding new content and new tweaks and stuff. So, you know, keep coming back. But in particular, there's a section called like tools and resources. So that, again, if you're interested in the nonprofit area, cost saving things, tips, lectures, webinars, free downloadable books and articles, scientific articles, blah, blah, blah. It's just really kind of a a big font to sip from of those kinds of things. If listeners are more interested in in broader topics, excuse me, in aspects, then come to alifeinfull.org. And alifeinfull.org is, again, just a different set of tools. We have all the, the podcast lives there, as well as all the podcast platforms that it's on, where I think we're on probably like you, you know, we're on like 30 some odd now. We have a YouTube channel. There's a couple of other little things that are kind of parts and projects of that. We have a section that links actually, it might sound odd, but it really works well to a, a number of Pinterest boards. So if you're interested in startups, we've got a set of content there. We've, if you're interested in finance, we've got one there. If you're interested in travel, we've got stuff there. I also kind of build customized motorcycles as a bit of a hobby. So we've got a thing on, on inspirations for motorcycle art. So it's really kind of a, you know, what interests, again, very broad-based magazine-y, you know, kinds of things. But if you also, we've got a, a thing, once I hit 60, there's a, I originally called it Epic 60, kind of thinking about, okay, now now what am I going to do? What's going to be epic in, in this next chapter? And then I kind of broadened it because as I was looking at that, I thought, well, my kids would like to do this. They're adults. Now it's like, well, they don't have to wait till 60 to be able to do this. So I just called it epic living. So we're kind of growing that. We'll have some tips and ideas and things, you know, there as well, too. It'll cover health and exercise and interesting things and interesting people. So so that site again is really kind of a, you know, choose your own adventure kind of site, you know, depending upon what you're interested in there. Yep. And it's not going to have everybody's, you know, I'm not, I'm interested in a lot of things, but probably not everything. But if it is something I'm interested in, chances are I've done probably kind of a deep dive and anything I find that I think is interesting. Of course, I narcissistically think everyone's going to think it's interesting. So I, you know, post it or link it or whatever on the off chance that that might, might again be of, of help to people. So fantastic. So anyway, yeah, so those are probably, yeah, the best. Yeah, the best two sites. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at it right now. And I went to your Pinterest and saw so many different cool pictures. So I think you can explore for a long time here on a lifeinfull.org. We'll have the links to that in the show notes too. Thanks. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's kind of corny. You know, people always think of Pinterest. Well, it's like, you know, it's a you know, I'm going to get baking recipes or, you know, a, a pattern for my mini skirt or something, which of course you can, but it's like, I like the visual aspect of it. I mean, I could have like a Dropbox link or something and you see a number of files sitting there or thumbnails or whatever, but I just thought the, and it's just easy to do too. Yeah. You know, that, like I just recently did some stuff on, you know, the, the top, the rank order of the top national parks in the United States. And so I thought, oh, that's really kind of cool. And I'm not going to them anytime soon, but I probably will in the future. So I linked it for myself so I can go back and easily find it. And anybody else can too. So again, it's it's all kind of born out of, you know, scratching my own itch. But, you know, other people, obviously someone wrote the dang thing. You know, So there's some audience for it as well too. So yeah. if I can help propagate it and get it out there, then, you know, muscle tough, why not? I'm just... 
that's my first time being on my Pinterest in a while. So that's reigniting it. So yeah, good. All right, good. Last, awesome. last question. What is your number one goal for the next 12 months? Boy, I guess I still feel like I'm getting, I always kind of cheat on answering your questions. I guess I'm feeling like trying to still establish a little bit of an equilibrium for myself where I'm at in my, my current status. And I'm not quite sure. I think it'll be probably, you know, a variety of different things. You know, it'll be the doing consulting and, and startup stuff. It'll probably be some grooming of that, letting some go to make room for new ones um, and, you know, bidding them, you know, the best with kind of their growth. But I don't, you know, it's sort of like where I'm at right now, I have opportunities to do a variety of things. And again, I like the, all the bright and sparkly things, but I also, I guess, maybe need to develop a discipline of, you know, being a bit more selective, like, like Derek Sivers says, you know, if it's not uh, hell, yes, it's no. So, you know, trying to really kind of keep the bandwidth. Stuart Brand also says any project worth doing is probably going to take five years. So, you know, you have to kind of commit to saying, you know, okay, I am, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it well, you know, I'm going to write a book or I'm going to make a movie or I'm going to do a whatever that, you know, it's going to be about this. And there's only so many more five years that, you know, that any of us have left. Yeah. So that's kind of how I'm trying to adopt that as well, too. So I guess maybe the, the general answer to your question is to have a better mindset of how to do what it is that I feel like I still need to do with right. the time remaining. So before the clock right. runs out. So, well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet taken the risk reduction assessment, I challenge you to go to my worstinvestmentever.com right now and start building wealth the easy way by reducing risk. As we conclude, Chris, I wanna thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst <laughs> investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, again, I just want to give a tip of the hat to you, Andrew. I love your work. I love what you've done. I love what you're doing. I can't wait to see what comes next. And please, anyone in the audience wants to reach out, check out the sites. You can reach me through those. I'm happy to be of help. Fantastic. And ladies and gentlemen, just go to the show notes and we'll have all the links there. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in our lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.